welcome to this throwback edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, where we remember the past and choose to repeat it. Today's episode was originally published on December 12th, 2019, and I wanted to play it now because we are all still watching in horror as the extent of the devastation from the Lahaina wildfire on Maui is being measured in deaths and destruction. While searching for the cause of the blaze, attention is quickly focused on the Hawaiian Electric Utility, the privately owned company that supplies power to Maui and maintains the electrical infrastructure. Though no conclusive cause of the fire has yet been determined, there is early evidence pointing to potentially sparking power lines as a possible starting point, prompting criticism of the management of the company, similar to the criticism of the California utility Pacific Gas and Electric after they caused a wildfire in 2019. Now, the Wall Street Journal, no major critic of corporations, is one of many outlets to write an article about this mismanagement. Theirs was titled, Hawaiian Electric Knew of Wildfire Threat, but waited years to act. In the article, they intimate that the utility was overly focused on converting to clean energy and that this was the cause of them taking their eye off the ball when it comes to fire safety. And this is exactly the takeaway some much more explicitly right-wing outlets are echoing from the article with headlines like, Hawaiian Electric focused on climate change, comma, neglected wildfire risk. True, but wildly misleading. And that was one of the most innocuously framed versions of those right-wing headlines. However, right there in the middle of the article, the Wall Street Journal stumbles on some additional facts, writing, quote, a 2020 management audit of the company found that its enterprise risk analysis was largely focused on financial risk with limited consideration of operational and business risk. And the division within the company that oversaw powerline operations had significant management problems, the audit found, end quote. So was it that they were going woke and worrying too much about climate change to manage the risk of fire they already knew about? Or was it that their profit motive took precedent over the public good? Slightly more detail. Back in 2015, the Hawaiian legislature mandated that 100% of Hawaii's electricity come from renewable sources by 2045. Naturally, this is what the company was responding to with their clean energy efforts and what conservatives are criticizing as being part of the mismanagement of the company. In fact, the government mandate creates a, a smooth path for conservatives to pivot from criticizing the company to criticizing the government. However, meanwhile, the company was putting off making safety upgrades that they knew they needed until they got permission from the state to pass on the costs of those upgrades to their customers. Another classic case of socializing the losses while privatizing the profits. Speaking of profits, while they spent less than $250,000 on wildfire project between 2019 and 2022, that's three years, $250,000, they were paying executives of the company over a million dollars each per year, as well as millions more being paid out in dividends to investors. So that headline, Hawaiian Electric focused on climate change, neglected wildfire risk, could have been equally true if rewritten as privately owned Hawaiian Electric focused on financial risk and profits, comma, neglected wildfire risk. 
Which finally brings us to today's episode from 2019 in the wake of the California wildfires, which argues for the benefits of publicly owned institutions, including power utilities. And the 2019 version of myself has some more introductory thoughts on public ownership, so I'm just going to let him, myself, then take over from here. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the reaction to decades of privatization of what should be public institutions. In other words, a reinvigorated movement for public ownership of institutions, such as utilities, banks, train systems, and so on, is on the march. But this isn't your grandfather's top-down public ownership. The new movement has bottom-up, accountable, democratic control of institutions at the very core of its mission. But before we get started, I have a few more thoughts on this, because as I've been researching today's episode, I've been thinking about how this issue cuts across some really interesting aspects of political philosophy. So I wanted to highlight that before we dive in, uh, just a quick overview on what I'm talking about from both sides. From the conservative side, one of the tent poles of conservatism is the demand for local control. They have that instinct to like, get out of my face, don't tell me what to do. They don't want to, you know, have someone from far away who doesn't understand their needs setting rules that they have to follow. Whereas this isn't a major belief for progressives because, I mean, frankly, we've seen what can happen when some people are left entirely to their own devices. You know, think the civil rights era and, and previously in Jim Crow and all that. Human rights atrocities can break out if oppressors are left to their own devices and they're in control at the local level and there's no recourse beyond that. So progressives want to be able to set laws broadly that protect everyone, even if that means Washington is imposing its will on some faraway locality where those uh, politicians have never been to. So conservatives hold local control as a core value whereas progressives hold positive outcomes as their core value. Now, I think conservatives would argue that they insist on local control because it provides better outcomes, but if you can demonstrate that the opposite is true, they're not necessarily going to go along with that. Whereas progressives, as I think we'll see, really just care about the outcomes, and they, they care much, much less about where the power lies. If the power lies in Washington and it works well, cool. If it lies at the local level and it works well, cool. So the issue of public ownership sits right at the center of this philosophical debate. Conservatives generally oppose public ownership because they favor local control, and public could mean, you know, some faraway capital is controlling what's happening in your small town. Progressives like the idea of public ownership because they want to be able to regulate through the democratic system rather than the market system. Don't just let the market do whatever it wants. Something can go wrong. Don't let people necessarily do whatever they want. Atrocities may arise, that sort of thing. But this doesn't mean that conservatives oppose all public ownership because some public ownership can be done at the genuinely local level. And as I said, progressives have no problem with local control of publicly owned institutions as long as it works out well, as long as the outcomes 
are genuinely good. So that's sort of an overview of the opposing political philosophies. But now we have to address the elephant in the room. When you come to public ownership, of course, you think of state ownership. And when you think of state ownership, you can't help but think of Soviet-style state ownership communism. It'd be great if we didn't need to keep having this conversation, but the United States has formed so much of its collective identity over the past 60 years by being the opposite of the Soviet Union. I mean, that's why we only teach neoclassical economics to our students, because God forbid they learn anything else. And that's why it says, in God, we trust on our money to be different than those godless communists. So we can really only understand ourselves if we understand the Soviets at this particular time in history. So Soviet-style state ownership is still what many of us think of when we think of public ownership. And with that comes the the idea of inept, unaccountable, often corrupt bureaucracies making decisions far away from the institutions that they have control over. So it's basically like what conservatives hate about Washington, D.C. turned up to 11. And there's no denying that it was a left-wing movement that overthrew the Russian czars and implemented that system in what became the Soviet Union. But let's just assume for a minute that they are not like blood-drinking, evil people who were just hungry for power and wanted to oppress everyone. The purpose of the revolution was to overthrow an oppressive system where the vast majority of people were in grinding poverty. So the whole premise was to redistribute wealth, take from the rich, give to the poor, that whole thing. So in their quest to do that, they did what left-wing progressive movements always do, which is do the thing that they think will work the best. So they knew they wanted to take from the rich and give to the poor. The only question was how. And they figured, okay, we've taken over the state. The state now represents all of the people. So if we take the wealth and the businesses from the rich and give it to the state, well, then that's the easiest way for the for all the people to benefit because the state is the people, the people is the state, and so on. So it turns out that having the state own everything and manage everything from a top-down uh, sort of perspective is a terrible way to run society. But you can see how that might have looked okay on paper beforehand and just didn't pan out in reality. Side note, it's a bit like how unregulated capitalism looks a lot better on paper than in real life. So here's what everyone listening needs to know. Everyone has learned that lesson. We shouldn't keep having the same debate about Soviet-style ownership and socialism being the same as communism and and thinking about uh, the Soviet Union. We have all learned that lesson. It's not just socialism-hating conservatives that got the memo. Far-left progressives who hate capitalism, think it's destroying humanity and the planet, also learned the lesson of the failures of Soviet-style socialism. So where does that leave us? With today's episode, featuring strong progressives advocating for public ownership of major institutions, but with the local, democratically accountable control that conservatives love so dearly. So this topic, you know, it may sound kind of dry and even boring at first glance. You know, should an electric company be managed by investors who appoint managers Or by managers appointed by government fit. Like I'm falling asleep already. But in reality, I find this to be a very exciting topic 
when seen through the lens of history and political philosophy. For instance, how did the legacy of World War II inspire the creation of a publicly run rail system in the UK that didn't bother to include the public? We shall find out. So have a listen and then go make a friend with a conservative and tell them that you love local government after all. Now onto the show. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, Building Local Power, Weekly Economics, The Next System Podcast, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Counterspin, and The Laura Flanders Show. PG&E, the corporation that controls most of Northern and Central California's electricity and the biggest utility in America, has been implicated in many of the fires that have ravaged California in recent years, including the campfire that killed 85 people and completely destroyed the town of Paradise in 2018. In January, PG&E declared bankruptcy, facing a number of lawsuits related to the wildfires, but it still controls much of California's power grid. For more, we go to a lawmaker who's calling for the California state government to take over control of PG&E and make it a public utility. Congressmember Rokhana joins us now from Washington, D.C. Um, Congressmember Kana, later in the broadcast, we're going to talk to you about this epic day around the issue of impeachment. But right now, we're focusing on what's happening in California, which is also, to say the least, epic in this emerge state of emergency. Explain for people— around the world who don't understand how PG&E operates, what it is now, and what you are calling for? Well, first of all, it has been a disaster in the Bay Area of where I live. Uh, people's homes are being destroyed by fire. Many thousands of people are without basic electricity. PG&E is basically a private monopoly that gets a return on investment for their private investors, but has no competition. It's the worst of both worlds. It's a monopoly, a private monopoly, and yet it has exclusive jurisdiction uh, over a particular zone, so it doesn't have the competition that free markets usually have. And this has resulted in PG&E making systematic underinvestments. They have not secured the power lines. They have not engaged in the uh, brush clearing that was necessary to make sure that these fires didn't uh, escalate. They have no provision for backup power, even though this was completely uh, foreseeable. At the same time, they're paying their CEO $9.8 million, and the investors are uh, making money, and this mismanagement has led to bankruptcy. What I have said is, in a case where you have a private monopoly without competition, that's a case of public ownership where you're not having a profit motive and extractive capitalism. The state should take over uh, PG&E, and different municipalities should run the uh, uh, power uh, distribution for their cities, and then the state should provide it to rural areas where the cities can uh, do the job. Representative Rokhanda, how common is it in the U.S. that uh, gas uh, and electricity are provided by private corporations? I mean, I myself was confused that this PG&E is called a public utility, but in fact it's private. Well, it's technically a public investor utility. In other words, there is 
public regulatory oversight uh, over it, uh, the uh, California Public Utilities Commission, but it's private investment and it has a private board of directors and they determine the executive compensation. And the public regulators really don't have much ability uh, to move PG&E. At the same time, PG&E is pouring millions of dollars into the governor's campaign, into state legislators' campaigns. So the process has been co-opted by these special interests. Unfortunately, most of the country, many states have public investment utilities. And this is why Bernie Sanders and his Green New Deal plan has said that we need to move to publicly owned utilities. And we know in publicly owned utilities, particularly municipalities, are much better. It's lower cost for residents. Their uh, energy mix tends to be much more renewable. Their safety standard tends to be much higher. And you take the profit motive uh, of extractive capitalism out of it. And so what would need to happen for it to become an actual uh, publicly owned utility controlled by the state of California? And can you explain, for example, how that might have changed the outcome of what happened in Paradise, California, um, which burned to the ground, killing 85 people last year? Absolutely. Well, had PG&E been a publicly owned utility, instead of paying $9.8 million to the CEO, because there's no way California voters or taxpayers would have allowed that, uh, PG&E would have been required to make the investments in the safety of the power lines. They would have been